Good evening, you are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. Mountain Time. If you ever miss our show, you can check it out on cgsw.com slash writers dash block. Writer's Block features inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction segments, and other fun literary trivia. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with writer-in-residence Leah Horlick, a quick shout-out for a local literary event brought to you by David Martin, and an interview with Daniel Scott Tisdale. Following that, we have a short segment on Canadian writer, storyteller, and humorist Stuart McLean. Without further ado, let's get started. Here's our first interview with Leah Horlick. Stay tuned, and keep that dial locked to 90.9 FM. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 9.9 FM in Calgary. Today, I'm speaking with Leah Horlick, the new writer-in-residence in the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program at the University of Calgary. So welcome, Leah. Thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And so I guess tell me a bit about the program and what got you interested in it. Yes, I am just thrilled to be stepping into the role of Writer-in-Residence with the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program. Marjorie Salona was announced as the writer earlier this year and unfortunately has had to step down for personal reasons, so I feel very, very lucky that I'm able to step in and fulfill the role for the next eight months. It's an amazing program housed at the University of Calgary to connect writers with the broader community in the city and also across Treaty 7 and Region 3 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. And I'm so excited to spend some time getting to know the creative work happening among students and faculty in the university and the city. I can't wait to work with writers of all levels. All right. And uh, you'll be starting in a few weeks, I guess. And so I guess, uh, how do you see your year uh, uh, going over the next uh, eight months, I guess? Well, you know, one of the things that really drew me to apply to this residency is it's one of the only writing residencies in Canada that really encourages you to connect with the community and doesn't require any teaching in a university environment. So I have a 50-50 split between working on some exciting new projects uh, that will challenge me in my own creative practice, but also opportunities to connect with the community, whether that's running free events that are open to the public, like writing workshops or readings. Um, I'm hoping really to connect with writers who face barriers to publication in Canadian literature, um, whether that's working with people who have English as an additional language or high school students or people who are involved in like other disciplines of art but are excited about transitioning into writing. There's lots of opportunities and most residencies don't really afford time for that. So I'll be in and out of Calgary a couple times over the year, um, meeting with writers for manuscript consultations or just to chat about um, what it's like making a living in the arts or questions you have about a creative project. People don't need to have a fully developed manuscript to come and meet with me and I'm really looking forward to getting to know the city a little better. And so your past work is, has been in poetry as well as prose, so tell me about that. Yes, so I am the author of three books of poetry. The first was published by Thistledown Press here in my home city of Saskatoon. The second is called For Your Own Good and was published by Caitlin Press when I lived in Vancouver for almost 10 years. And my third book just came out last from Brick Books in Ontario called Moldovan Hotel. 
And it's about a trip that I took to Romania and Moldova to explore my own family heritage in the region. Um, so primarily I've done a lot of work in poetry, but I've done some work in nonfiction and fiction as well. And I'm taking the opportunity <laughs> from the University of Calgary, somewhat against my better judgment, to try my hand at writing a novel. And so I guess tell me about what ideas you have for the novel so far. Sure. So I'm really inspired by works of Yiddish theater, um, and I'm going to be exploring a play that's very popular in the Yiddish theater and, and broader Jewish community called The Dybbuk, which is about a malicious spirit. Kind of good timing as we're post spooky season with this interview. It, the Dybbuk is a malicious spirit that can possess you, uh, typically at a wedding. And there's a part of Jewish wedding ceremonies in the Ashkenazi tradition where you still check to make sure that your partner hasn't been possessed before you marry them. And so my novel is going to explore um, what if somebody tried to be possessed by the Dybbuk on purpose. Um, it's a real departure for me from my previous creative work. And so I'm looking forward to working with other people who feel like they're taking risks in their creative practice, whether that means you don't think of yourself as a writer or you're trying your hand in a new genre. I'm really looking forward to connecting with people writing at all different levels. And where does your interest in folklore or the fantastic sort of genre come from? Oh, such a good question. So um, my family is Jewish, and we have a strong folkloric tradition related to, um, you know, of course, not only the religious aspect, but superstition. And there's such a rich history there, especially in Eastern Europe. So I started getting more and more interested in that after my trip um, in 2017. And now that I've had a chance to kind of do more reading outside of the strictly historical realm when I was preparing for my book, which was mostly focused on the Holocaust, it's an opportunity to kind of dig more into that really rich part of our tradition that maybe doesn't get quite as much attention because of the focus on intergenerational trauma. Yeah, and I did get a chance to read Moldovan Hotel before the interview, and so oh, I found you. that to be a very impactful collection of poems. And at what point did you feel you were ready to release that book of poetry? Such a good question. You know, I'm sure other artists will empathize. Sometimes I feel like a project is never really done. You just decide you kind of have to stop. And it's a good thing you have deadlines from your publishers and editors as well. Um, but for me, I felt... You know, we released the book just in the middle of the pandemic, but it was completed before then. And I thought, you know, things are really changing in the world and the resonance of some of these poems are going to shift. And so I think I have to stop working on this now as the world changes so quickly um, and get this book out into the world before the landscape completely changes um, and before I stop trying to intersect with other social movements and things happening. Um, so I think I think it was a good time, a good time to stop and shift my attention to other things. There, uh, I believe there is a residence that writers and residents from out of town get to uh, settle yes. into when in Calgary. And so tell me about getting to know the Calgary region through uh, your time here. So I'm very, very lucky there is still a residency portion of the program where you get two weeks to yourself just to write. We're still working out the location where that will actually be for me to hunker down and put some put some work in on the page count um, because COVID, some of the, the details of that part of the residency have shifted. But I actually lived in Calgary for the last two years. I only moved back to Saskatoon at the end of July. Um, I was thrilled to move to Calgary after about nine and a half years in Vancouver. Um, when the pandemic hit, I wanted to be close 
closer to my family and I really wanted the sunshine in the winter. And so I thought, well, I'll hop one city over and be in Calgary. And then the pandemic went on much longer than I certainly anticipated. And here we still are. And so in July, I thought, you know what, it's time to go back to Saskatoon and be closer to my family. And then I got the call about the residency, you know, maybe three weeks ago, maybe it was two. So it's all very fresh. But suffice to say, I'm lucky to be a little bit familiar with Calgary, thanks to having lived there over the last two years. And I'm really looking forward to coming back to the city a couple of times during my residency, even though most of it will be conducted virtually for accessibility. It's a beautiful city and I'm so thrilled to get uh, visit again and kind of interface with the university a little bit more. And uh, I guess, uh, what is your experience working with students, uh, guiding them through the writing a manuscript? Yes. So I'm really excited to work with people, whether you're um, just starting out or you have multiple books under your belt. I'm so excited to hear from people who are stuck on their creative projects and kind of looking to get going again. If you just want an additional set of eyes, if you have questions about moving between genres. Um, And I have a lot of experience working with people at different parts of their career, whether that's uh, people who are just beginning writing later in life or um, students in high school who are just getting started. I did a residency with the Surrey English Teachers Association where I was the writer in residence for the Surrey School District for a year. Um, And I was the first out gay writer to take on that role. And it's the largest school district in the Lower Mainland. So I think I worked with easily a couple thousand high school students and have lots of lots of interest in what's important to people in their own writing and where they see their career going because there are so many barriers to publication in this country, especially for people who um, experience barriers to participating in the arts. So I'm looking forward to, to being able to meet some needs in, in the community and then get a better sense of what those needs might be so I can be more useful. In the process of finding your own voice in writing, do you think that that helps other writers you work with? I hope so. Yeah, I had tremendous mentorship, you know, all through all through my early, early kind of days. Lots of programs at public libraries were an amazing support to me. I grew up in a really rural area and I was lucky to have, you know, people who were willing to drive me to programs in the next city over so that I could take writing camps, things like that. And not everybody has those opportunities. So something like the university's program where they're really committed to making sure that you get out into the community as much as possible, I hope will help me kind of share what I've learned about mentorship and just supporting other writers in the multiple ways that we need to be supported, you know, whether that's stage fright or getting words down on the page or not knowing where to start or um, changing from writing to fiction to trying to write poetry after, you know, working for a long, long time in one genre. All of those are things that I'm, I'm excited to do my best to pass on. Okay, and I guess we're wrapping up soon. Anything else you look forward to in this residency and you'd like to talk about? Oh, well, I really just hope that folks will consider booking a manuscript consultation with me wherever you are in your own projects, or even if you just have an idea or a bad case of writer's block that you'd like to talk about. You can book online or in person if I'm in the city for office hours. And the best way to find the booking form is through the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program website. There's a button that says request a manuscript consultation, or you can find the link in the bio on my Instagram, which is just my name, which is Leah Horlick. All right. Thank you very much, Leah, for your time today, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon in Calgary. Thanks so much, Jenny. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks again. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. That was my interview with Leah Horlick, the writer-in-residence in the Calgary Distinguished Writers Program at the University of Calgary. 
That was my conversation with her back in early October. You're hearing this one month into her residency. She is a Canadian poet with three collections of poetry. Her most recent is Moldovan Hotel that was written inspired by a trip to learn about family connections in Moldova and Romania. She lives in Saskatoon and Treaty 6 territory. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. If you missed that last interview with Leah Horlick, you can always check it out on cjsw.com. Hey everybody, tonight on Writer's Block we are doing a quick feature on a local literary event celebrating their 22nd anniversary. I would like to introduce David Martin who works with Single Onion, Calgary's longest running poetry reading series. Hi David, how are you doing today? Great, thanks for having me. We love having people on, especially if they're locals. So I wanted to ask you about this event that you guys are hosting. Now, I understand that uh, Single Onion was actually going to celebrate their 20th anniversary in 2020, but you had to push that back because of COVID. Um, so is this kind of the first in-person big event that you've been doing kind of since COVID? Are you really excited for that because the events feel kind of different or? This is, well, we've done a few in-person events uh, since COVID. We during uh, the pandemic, we had switched to doing uh, online readings, and so uh, we would welcome in poets from. Uh, actually, we could we could bring in poets from across Canada to be part of our online readings, which was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And we could keep our reading series going, which was great, and keep our audience connected with uh, the poetry scene. Uh, but we had planned a, a large party for our 20th anniversary, and then everything was planned. We were ready to go, and then we had to put it on hold. So we're really excited that now uh, we can get together with with everybody and celebrate and uh it's going to be at inside out theater on november 19th and it's our 22nd anniversary so this is we are we're calgary's longest running uh, monthly poetry reading series and we we've hosted hundreds of poets from all across Canada and featured local authors. And this is just a chance to uh, kind of party and uh, bring people together. Uh, yeah, uh, CBC once asked me a couple of questions. And one of, one of the things I said is that I loved literary events because they always had free wine. And I was always that person that would head like straight to the snack table during the breaks. Um, I don't know if anyone else does that. I feel kind of called out whenever I do that. Um, well, awesome. Well, thank you for reaching out to us. I wanted to ask if you wanted to give our listeners a bit more context about the event. Um, how large do you think it's going to be? How many people do you think are going to be there? I'm not sure exactly how many people will be there but it will be a fairly large event because we are uh, we're going to have some bands playing we've invited some local artists to show and sell their work uh, we've partnered with a local brewery uh, Bandit Peak Brewery who are going to be one of our sponsors so we're going to have some refreshments for people and um, we're going to bring in some other literary groups to kind of join us in our celebration shelf life books will be there they'll be selling some books the Writers Guild of Alberta will be there with information about their programs. And we wanted this to be kind of a collaborative celebration. And so there'll be some poetry readings from some of the original Single Onion members, uh, one of whom, Kirk Miles, is still with the group. He's still our uh, the head of the Single Onion. We're really excited about that. As well as some current Single Onion uh, members and uh, some local poets that we want to bring in with us. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure about the numbers, but we're looking forward to having a lot of people and, and really bringing the, the Calgary poetry community together to to celebrate with us. I always like listening to poets because I feel like when they read their own poetry, 
it brings a certain kind of nuance to the language that you don't always get when you're reading it on the page. It really does depend, of course. Uh, yeah, I thought I would ask that only specifically because I've attended a few online literary events during COVID and I found it wasn't the same at all. Was there anything that you wanted listeners to know about the event or any other details that you'd like to mention as well? I think that's about it. You can find out more about The Single Onion um, if you go to www.singleonion.com. We have a Facebook page. Uh, we're on Twitter. If you go to our website, you can sign up for an email list. And so once a month, you'll get an email from us about what we're up to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, reaching out so we could give a quick shout out to Single Onion. Uh, before we do a log off here, though, I do have one more question out of curiosity. Why Single Onion? Why not like Single Tomato or like Single Strawberry or like something else? <laughs> That's a very good question, and I don't know if I actually have the answer. Uh, I've been part of the Single Onion for 17 years or something like that, and I don't actually know why it's called the Single Onion. My, my guess is it has something to do with layers, but this is one of the great mm. mysteries of, of the group. The, the, uh, uh, the uh, Shrek 2001 metaphor. <laughs> like yeah, a lot of literary journals and literary events have just the most bizarre like strange, almost like band names. And I'm like, I need to know the story behind this. Like this is driving me insane. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to us. For all the listeners, make sure to t attend that event and check out their website. Thank you so much for coming on, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. And if you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cgsw.com. This episode of Writer's Block featured an interview with Leah Horlick and a quick shout out for a local literary event. Our last segment will be my interview with Daniel Scott Tisdale about his new book, The End is in the Middle. Stay tuned! And the cat ran away with the spoon on CJSW. Good evening, everybody. You are tuned in to Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Tonight, we have me, Maddie Robinson, interviewing Daniel Scott Tisdale on his new book, The End is in the Middle. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm really good. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm always looking for something unique or a little bit different to look at in our uh, show. And this book caught my attention because it's so different in how the poems are kind of structured. Cool. So this is a book of poetry. I, wanted, I wondered if you wanted to kind of explain to the listeners how these poems work and what make them a little bit different. Absolutely. Yeah. So the form comes from Mad Magazine. That was an American uh, satirical humor magazine that, that ran for about, you know, 50 years, just recently kind of ended. And every issue ended with an Al Jaffe fold-in. And so for your fold-in, you would have some sort of visual and you'd have some text at the bottom. And say one of my favorite examples is this picture of a abstract expressionist artist making this incredible, big, intricate painting. And the text says, who is this artist that most connects with their audience today? And you fold the page over, and now the picture reveals Snoopy from Peanuts. And the <laughs> words now say Charles Schultz, right? So you've got oh, this kind of visual, awesome. <laughs> textual punchline that ended every issue. And so I was, in a, I was obsessed with Mad Magazine when I was a kid. And as soon as I became a poet, you know, kind of in my mid-teens, I wanted to do a mad fold-in poem where you have a poem, and you read the poem, but you get to the ending, and, and it hasn't ended, right? The, the final line isn't there. So in order to get the final line of your poem, you have to fold the page over 
And the words that are on the left and right edge of the poem now become that final line. So these, these are folded poems in that way. I always loved um, magazines that were creative like that. Like my, my first name is of course, Maddie. And I, my, um, one of my handles is Maddie lives like mad libs because I think it's yes. funny. Cause I just love, I just love stuff like that. Um, yes. But the reason, the reason this caught my attention is of course, mad magazine or mad libs or these kind of things. The word mad also relates to um, mental illness, going crazy. Yes. And that's kind of how you made that connection between the poetry and the the, the structure of the poems and like the content of the poems. Um, exactly. And a lot of these poems actually in this book are kind of centered around mental illness. So I was really curious yeah. about asking you for the next question. What do you think makes mental illness go so well with this specific type of poetry and like this kind of experimental mm. Looking, mm. looking for the end in the middle? Um, yes. This is what made me the most curious about this book. I thought it was so interesting that you chose to combine. You could write about love. You could write about anything. Right. But you make yeah. the end of you make the end in the middle about personal struggles and things like this. Would you like to kind of expand on that a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. So, so just to go back a little bit. So, I wrote my first Mad Folden poem in two thousand four, I think. Yeah, two thousand four. Finally figured out. You know, pro tip to anybody who wants to write one: come up with your last line first, because then you know where to to seed the words along the edge. So, I kind of I finally cracked that. Ended my first book of poems in two thousand six with a Folden poem, and that was kind of it. A lot of my life has sort of been, you know, these ups and downs and, and, the, and these, these mental health struggles. And, you know, it was in 20, January of 2017, when I had another, you know, just really difficult experience and, you know, didn't sleep all weekend, was really in a bad state. And, you know, as I often do, I went to writing, you know, as a way of, of, of kind of encountering this and dealing with this. And I'd written a couple lines about the, the brain on fire and et cetera. And I, and I started to write something and, and, and who knows what, you know, just this inspiration. It just seemed like here's the chance to write another Mad Folden poem. So it really was born just out of the moment, you know, without a lot of like sitting back and, how, you know, kind of chin stroking and, and it kind of intellectual thinking. It was just literally in that moment. I'm really struggling. I need to think about this. And so it was it was then that's how I wrote that Mad Folden poem. And then the second one was the poem, the title poem, The End is in the Middle, which was our encounter at the airport where because of Trump, everyone was being kept and bottled and delayed. And we were in this big spiraling line and people kept saying, you know, where's the end of the line? Where's the end? And, and we're all yeah. like in the middle. It's like, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's yeah. like a mad, right? Well, and so that's how that poem came. Exactly. And it's such a great metaphor for chaos. Like that's how you know it's chaos is when the end's in the middle, right? It's like, right? <laughs> but that also relates to, I think, like the, like you say, the brain and things like this. So yeah. this is really interesting. Sorry, I was just listening to what you said. So you mentioned that a lot of times you started almost kind of with the last line first. So the end was actually in the beginning for the process. Yeah, exactly. Middle, in the poem, yeah. but it's in the end hypothetically. So it's the end is everywhere. Exactly. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting. So I know I understand you also teach creative writing, correct? Yes. So I wanted to ask about that then. Um, I think I'm just going to roll within just because I need to I need to understand this technique a little bit more. So when it yeah. comes to writing the, the, the last line first, obviously, there's a, a pragmatism uh, element to this. I know if you've never written a poem, you might think, oh, interesting. He made a poem and then it folds into the last line. But anyone that actually yeah. has written anything will be like, how did he do that? That was probably yeah. such a headache. <laughs> I once did a piece that was it was it was a piece that included elements of blackout poetry, but trying to like format it and get certain elements on the page was like it was right. it was by the end. I was like, I'm going to rip this thing apart like uh -huh. I'm so annoyed at this uh -huh. so someone who's kind of delved in with things like I've done um, anagram poetry and stuff just for fun of yeah. course yes yeah way yeah. harder than people think way uh -huh. harder they someone who doesn't write will be like oh that's cute and someone who does is like oh my gosh <laughs> I don't even know how he how you committed yourself to that <laughs> totally. uh -huh. so, so it makes sense to start with the last line but I wanted to branch out maybe in more of a literary vein and just ask in general for creative writing 
would you actually recommend starting with the end a lot? Because I find sometimes like a final mm. image is almost easier than a first image because the first image always ends up being not punchy enough. And then you have to go back and re-edit it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think maybe I am kind of lucky in the sense that lots of times as I'm writing, you know, that end is sort of there. You know, I am sort of sensing it. I mean, a part of the way my process works is, you know, I, I still, I'm old school. I still handwrite my poems. And I, I always write, with two pages in front of me and it'll change right or left, but one side will be where I'm writing the poem, you know, and I'm just going free. I'm like, here's my first line, here's my second line and, and, and the juices are flowing. And then I'll use this left-hand side where I'm at the same time sort of outlining, where I'm looking ahead and I'm like, oh, I can have a stanza about this. I could do that. So I'm sort of bouncing back and forth between the two. And that's what I'm just writing any poem. You know, that's kind of how my process works. So I guess that process did feed well into the fold-in poem where you really do need to kind of be looking ahead. But, you know, it's it's just like with any process, right? As you start to like, so when I'm first writing fold-in poems, you can tell the ones that I first wrote because it's full words after the fold. But then you want to challenge yourself. So for some poems, I would say I can only use a syllable from words. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to make my end line, I'm only allowed to use the syllables from the end and the start of these different words. And then it's like, okay, I'm actually only allowed to use one letter from each word or I'm, you know, and so you do start to set these new challenges for yourself as you start to figure out the form. And I do think, and I actually hadn't thought of it till you, till you asked this question, it's like, yeah, like there is the obvious, oh, mad folding poem. I'm in a fit of madness. So I'll draw on it. But, but your question makes me realize that, yeah, I think there's also something in the form that was helpful, that combination of guidance and challenge, you know, that that comes with the fold and form, that possibility for adventurousness, but limit, you know, that I think is helpful if you're in that state, you know what I mean? And, and you need some sort of focus. It's true. And form, sometimes the form almost is like a container. It helps hold all the, right? the, the chaos, right? And like, even I was looking at the, the cover art of this too, because it's, it's almost like two hands holding a brain or a brain on fire. But I was yes. thinking about like left, right, left brain, right brain, because you do yeah. fold in both to the middle. And yeah. it seems like your yeah. process is actually quite literally left brain, right brain. So that that's yeah. that's very interesting. There's a couple of references I got here. The, the first that I got was you do reference a poem called Her Kind by Anne Sexton. Yes. Um, And I was so excited for this because that poem actually was one of those poems, like poems when I was very young, like 13, that actually got me into poetry because it, uh -huh. it does something a little different. Um, And so I know sometimes when it comes to poetry, part of why people like the, the form is because I know that free verse is very popular these days and things like this. Yeah. But to have that challenge of having that last line in the middle or to like almost follow kind of more of a structure like a villanelle or a sonnet or something, it adds more almost pressure to try and think creatively yeah. and think outside of the box. Yeah. Um, but I did want to start by asking about a couple specific poems. So you have this poem called mm -hmm. Our Kind, which is kind of based off of yeah. um, Anne Sexton's Her Kind. So for the listeners who don't know, Her Kind by Anne Sexton is um, a really good poem that's basically about kind of a quote unquote witch. But as it goes through the poem, like the first stanza, you know, she's a witch. And the second stanza, oh, she's not really a witch. She's more of just a woman, kind of a weird lady in a hut. Yeah, yeah. And then the third the third one, the third stanza, she's just a regular woman that's being burned. So I, I love this when I was 13 because I read this because as she goes on, it just humanizes her more and more yeah. from this like 12 fingered or 11 fingered thing just to this this person who's being subjugated to torture. Um, So I wanted to ask what out of all the different poems that you could kind of riff off of or work with why did you choose her kind like what what connected you with this poem particularly yeah I mean a, a part of it was I had a similar experience with Sexton's work as well at a young age where as, as a poet who yet yeah, writing about experiences 
that I had, obviously not as a woman, but as someone struggling with mental illness. And I was just like, that was for me, obviously lots of people were doing that, but that just happened to be someone who I, you know, found in the Moose Jaw Public Library and, and was like, wow, you know, I didn't know you could write about this. I didn't know you could write about this in this way. So she was exactly. always a poet who was right very close to me in that way. And then as I became a teacher, you know, wanting to teach her work, I just found that this was just such a great teachable poem in all ways for its extremely important message and for its art as well. And so it was always with me in that way. And then I was just thinking of like, of, okay, what it's a great poem to jump off of in terms of sort of like mad solidarity then, you know, of like, we, here we are together, you know, we are a community and, and, and just trying to sort of speak to and connect with that. For sure. And I think it's interesting. Uh, last month I did an interview with someone, or it might have been the month before with an interview with someone who did a, um, it was an anthology about about witches or like the idea of a modern witch. And I think it's interesting because mm. of course Anne Sexton's poem is about that, but I think it's about like the outsider or being, yeah. being misunderstood. And so it really does connect with mental illness. Um, part of why I was curious about this poem is because with, with her poem, I have it up on my screen here, so I'm not, I'm not that good with the poem. I'm, I don't have it memorized. <laughs> Although I did love it when I was quite young. Um, you know, she starts by saying a woman like that is not a woman. And then yeah. she says the woman like that is misunderstood. And then she finally says a woman like that is not ashamed to die. So it's like the yeah. slow, the, the re repetitive lines at the end kind of slowly lead you to the shock of what's going to happen. You do yeah. something a little different. You say, who, who can cure our kind? who can solve our kind, and then you say, who can see and believe and embrace our kind? So are you kind of trying to provide a narrative of like how people approach mental illness of like trying to yeah. solve it and then trying to, you know, trying to cure it with pills and then trying to solve it as a problem and maybe just trying to embrace it instead of yes. like finding something there? Exactly. Just, yeah. yeah. It's probably perfect for students too. Um, as I know students, probably especially with COVID, I assume I've been struggling quite a bit. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experiences teaching and teaching poetry and how it relates to this book. So you you have this poem called Snowflake, and I assume it's kind of related to like how people, especially kids these days, are called like special snowflakes. And there's this whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's this whole um, kind of almost like pseudo insulting language about it, and oh everyone's yeah, a yeah. snowflake and everyone's beautiful. And you have you have this poem Snowflake, and I wanted to ask you. Um, with your experiencing like with your experience teaching creative writing and then seeing the new students come up like what what makes them different from earlier generations like what do you take about this snowflake trend oh interesting. I've, heard well, all, yeah. I've heard all sorts of opinions about this <laughs> i don't i don't know what to think interesting yeah that's a good question so i mean one thing i will say you know uh is uh you know i wrote this poem so the, the, i wrote this poem actually I, I had a book of short stories come out last november so of course everything was totally shut down I, I just so happened i was actually living alone at a lake so i did this amazing book launch where i was connecting with all these people online and, and it was a really special night and then the event ends and you close your computer and now it's like oh i'm a person sitting alone at a lake and then oh my and, but, gosh but having, <laughs> right but having all this energy in me still and I was just in a moment of just feeling this connection with with everyone kind of at the event and you know, just feeling very lucky. And for whatever reason, I just felt like this need to reclaim this word snowflake, you know, to, to say there is sort of power in it. Like, yeah, go ahead, call me a snowflake. I'm I'm happy to sort of like be accused of that, you know, for the reasons that I outline uh, in the poem. Oh, and just quickly, if anyone's interested in listening to the poem, I do have that on YouTube as a video poem kind of adaptation if people want to want to check it out. Um, but yeah, in terms of students, you know, I haven't been teaching, I've been teaching for a while, but not that long. So I started teaching at University of Toronto Scarborough in 2009. And I teach mainly creative writing in some academic classes. And yeah, I mean, I would say 
if there's been a change in the students, I think they are more politically aware. And I think they maybe are more politically engaged. But again, you would see that with creative writing students anyway. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, even out of if, all the students. <laughs> right? Even So even when I started teaching, maybe if the larger campus, but again, our campus is pretty politically engaged too. So I would say maybe I'm in a slightly unique position in that way. But I would say that, yeah, like, I, I feel hopeful and excited when I when I look at the students, you know, who who I teach with teach in the creative writing classes, just for the quality of their writing, for the way they kind of hold and do support one another, you know, that it's not just about them and their sort of like vision and and and, and their careers for the most part. Very, you know, very happy and very hopeful. That, that's that's good to hear. I was only curious because this poem, I. I felt I felt kind of like the political undertone of it only because like I know this this is kind of a thing with the younger generation getting called special snowflakes and then the last night yeah. line says you are snow um which is of course different than a snowflake because a, a snowflake is something small and delicate but as as we mentioned earlier uh so for listeners we were talking right before the interview um we got held up on this interview because of a blizzard <laughs> <laughs> so it's like do you want to undermine the snowflakes are they that pretty yeah. when there's like a million of them right yeah. so like you have to kind of remember this I think and people forget yeah. this I think <laughs> yeah, exactly. right which is maybe which is maybe the thing so you have this poem called method and you say why one and not the other why poem and not hastily splattered canvas or mime why bullet and not pill or bridge are we destined born into our craft as with the elemental signs of our birth this one kind of struck me only because i wanted to ask a little bit about this particular form of writing and, and mental illness. So, you know, there are songwriters and there are visual artists, there are dancers, there's all sorts of different kinds of art. And I wanted to ask, like, I guess in particular, what, what do you think it is that draws people to, to write about mental illness and not, not something mm -hmm. like, say, like people, I feel like people sing a lot about heartbreak. And of course, people, you know, make art about anything. But I feel like mm -hmm. when it comes to mental illness, for whatever, like, for whatever reason, poetry just seems to grab it really strongly. And I think it has yeah. something to do with either the failure of language or perhaps the, um, the split in language that's kind of quite visually shown in these kind of poems. Yeah. Um, I know that's kind of a very specific question, but I, I wanted to delve deeper into it because I feel like out of all the different forms of mental illness I've seen, the, the failure of language or the attempt at not failing at language seems to be like the strongest portrayal of, yeah. of, of Ill, especially if it's a serious illness, not just something like, say, of, of course, all illness is serious, but you you understand what I'm saying, something that's yeah. very, very difficult to deal with. What is it about language that seems to kind of like pull people in? Because I know in literary theory, um, there's a lot of different theorists that talk about language being almost, they use they utilize language like saying that language is quote unquote crazy because you're trying to communicate yeah. something you never can, or you yeah. have a picture in your mind, but you're using like random syllables to like, it, it almost yeah. is a little crazy. And like, they, of yeah. course it's theory. So they use words like, you know, like they say like psychosomatic and all these things. But yeah. I guess my question to you is like, what, where is really the connection between the method of, of writing and poetry and mental illness? Like, where's, why is that? So why are those two things so connected? I do think there is that part of it of, yeah, as you said, it's like these experiences defy language, defy understanding, you know, that we're, we're, we're completely struggling at the level of treatment or, or we're completely struggling at the aspect of labor and how we help, you know, support people who are, who are in uh, having these experiences. So yeah, I do think a, a lot of it is that it is hard to describe. It is ineffable. And so poetry, of course, is kind of equipped to handle that the most. I think a part of it is that, you know, poetry can, poetry doesn't have to tell a story, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to have that neat kind of structure that a reader would expect, you know, if they're a fiction, reading fiction, 
Um, it can it can use imagery in a way it can immerse us in our bodies as writers who are struggling with mental illness. You know, we can draw on that sensory experience and that understanding through, you know, using sensory language, using that imagery. You know, of course, metaphor is very and similarly are very friendly in poetry as well, too. So a way of giving form to that which we can't understand and describe, you know, metaphor is one of our greatest tools, uh, I think, for doing that. You know, yeah, poetry can handle paradox, you know, poetry can handle all right. of these things. Poetry so can I think, handle paradox. Right? I think that's that's kind of like the the key part there, I think, that you're getting at. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so it's just, yeah. And it just as importantly, readers of it can as well, too. You know, you just have that, re you know, poetry readers are just going to be more open and ready for that in a way that a fiction reader you know, obviously there's exceptions, obviously there's experimental fiction, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, you know, readers have certain expectations of story and, and, and structure and things like that, that just maybe aren't as true to the to the mental health experience. Correct. I think the, the, the paradox element's really important. And I know that you do play with language a couple times in this. I've noticed like certain words, it's like phonetically, they sound the same, but in, in on the page, they actually are completely different. Um, You mentioned like Canon, as in like the Canon camera, but then right. you also mentioned like, Canon is in uh, Guan Yin, the, the poet and like kind yeah. of mystical figure, which I thought was yeah. really interesting because I actually read about uh, Quan Yin recently. And a <laughs> oh, lot of cool. her poetry is kind of it's kind of um it's it's very haikuish in the fact that it's like very like simplified and beautiful and 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 very smart, yeah. of course. Like I really like that that poetry. So I guess kind of like being able to jump over some of these barriers is like a big element of it too, right? So like it looks different on the page as how it sounds, and that's part of the I think the paradoxical element. Right. You're like using you're using the failure as a strength rather than a weakness. Yes. Um, if that kind of makes sense. Um, 100%. So it's yeah. funny because when you when you study English literature from the point of the reader and not a writer, um, because like you know, there's there's writing programs and then there's literary programs. And I, yes. I transferred into a writing program, but I was in a literary program before. Yes. Um, I don't know if it makes you actually a better writer or if you have more of that inner critic always going, but I think it does make you a good reader. So if you're in a circle yes. with a bunch of other students, you can be like this particular word also correlates with this particular historical usage. And everyone's like, how do you know that? And you're like, yeah. ah, <laughs> yeah. just trust yeah. me on this one. Uh -huh. Like I wrote an essay about this like five years ago. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. Um, but I guess I wanted to ask, because I understand you do like teach poetry and things like this. And I'm actually not much of a poet. Um, I've I've always been more of a fiction writer, but I do I mm -hmm. do like play with form a lot and I do experiment mm -hmm. in that way. So I don't think it's 100 mm percent -hmm. prose. I think it's like 89 percent prose. Right. So I wanted to ask, like, what what's kind of your advice when you are teaching students, especially if, like, for example, one thing I thought that was interesting about these poems is, you know, they talk a lot about they get they get really heavy into uh, uh, mental illness and personal struggles, but they don't shy away from it. And they kind of use it as something to actually write about my personal takes with people I know. And also just with myself is like when you're struggling mentally, sometimes it can actually be hard to write. Yes. So do you so. Obviously, I can tell that you obviously really are interested in the well-being of like your students and obviously their work. So what's your advice for someone who's struggling with either finding the passion for writing or finding the like if they want to write about something difficult, but they don't know how to write it? Like what's what's kind of your go to advice for for poets or like even yeah short story writers that are just struggling? Like, do you have anything that other people haven't told you that you can't like any like any advice that's specifically yours <laughs> to give, I guess? I mean, a part of it, I would say. You know, say, for example, for me, I've been having a tough, a tough year and I've written one poem, you know, and I've 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 tried different things. I've had some false starts and some other projects that I've left. And only in the last couple of weeks, finally, have I kind of started a new started a new project that I'm kind of going full tilt at and, and feeling good about. But there's like, you know, eight months where I was just sort of like floundering. And I mean, you know, my so what was my advice to myself and that experience? Right. It was sort of just like 
being, you know, being good to myself and not pushing myself and, and just, you know, watching lots of movies maybe that are in the direction of something I want to write, you know, reading books that are maybe in the direction of, I want to write, you know, doing some new things, you know, I'm interested in pro wrestling, doing some pro wrestling things as well that maybe have nothing to, you know, have nothing to do with my writing, but maybe they will, you know? So I'd say like, I'd say letting yourself sort of roam and, and, and explore sort of widely in different arts and things like that can be a, a great way to do it. You know, the kind of flip side of that is when you are then sort of getting, getting going on something is, yeah, like, it is so true of just nurturing that kind of writing addiction of of developing that routine because when you do develop that routine that that's something that I can totally attest to that once you get that routine going no matter how kind of exhausted or whatever you are you just get get that 10 minutes of writing going and it's like a cup of coffee you know your mm-hmm. body just gets excited your body just sort of like wakes up to this and so th- those are i think are, are the sort of two sides of just yeah letting yourself just search and, and not write, you know, uh, but then when you are really making sure you're getting that routine going, because it is making it a habit. It's just so important. I wanted to say, well, thank you for that honest advice, because I thought I'd ask only because sometimes I wonder about the the act of writing, because, you know, there's that quote, you know, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing about. And I feel sometimes yeah. like there's like for me, like I was in school for a bit and I, I'm not in school currently for personal reasons. And I almost feel kind of stressed about it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I feel right. like I have like this weird responsibility to like get back into it. But you don't want to get back into it if you just feel like in your heart, like you're like, this is not the time right now. So do you think part of the act of writing is like going out, like say like going on a weird date and then putting it in your back pocket as a story or like going out into the snow and like looking at the mountains or, or I don't know, something on the mountains and like thinking, having, having a thought about it and putting it in your back pocket. Like, can you, can you count those as like writing activities, even if you're not technically putting anything on a page, I guess. hundred percent. I mean, that's yeah. the great thing about what we do. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like the, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it's like, I, I went to see three horror movies, you know, I, I want to do something horror kind of related. And awesome. I went to see three horror <laughs> movies. And I was like, I, I you know, I, 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 what the review cinema was the highlight where it was this, I didn't realize that uh, uh, Sidney Sherman, the, you know, the, the famous postmodern photographer also was a filmmaker and did this incredible horror movie oh, in the 90s. Interesting. Right? Office, office film. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And, and you watch it and you're like, oh, the mistake here, it was, it was made by a woman starring women, you know? And so mm. at that time, it just didn't get promoted for, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, it was just yeah, like, yeah brilliant it's scary it's oh. it's so hilarious like we're, we're so. going off topic but i have to ask so if it's a postmodern uh photographer making film like how like what that must how what what idea of horror is that that must be like a new brand of horror oh well it's actually i mean it, i mean it's it's not in the way that that she has made it's a very hollywood movie you know what i mean like it has like famous people in it like 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 molly ringwald's in it uh and and oh and no it, way <laughs> yeah i don't know and it's a total just like great like kind of super dark comedy kind of horror um that yeah it's it, that i think now more I, I have a friend who i didn't realize like cindy sherman would be on his sort of like mount rushmore of like creators and he had never heard of this movie interesting so yeah so you know so there's stuff like that too you kind of get out there and you just sort of make these new discoveries and, and who knows what will come of it. And another thing that, I, that I've started doing over the pandemic, you know, I got back into watching pro wrestling. And so when, when we came back to Toronto, uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to go do a pro wrestling class just to f- see what it feels like, you know, and, and have that experience. And now I, you know, I, I train whenever I can. I try to go twice a week, take part in the shows. And it's like, who knows where that's going to take me, you know, as a writer, but it's like, I could definitely feel it's helped, you know, kind of op- open me up to new communities, new experiences, new ways of creating, new ways of celebrating people um, that, yeah, has just totally, I know, been a big part of why I finally have, you know, kind of got, got writing again. 
That's really good advice. I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially students, because they're so young, there's like a pressure to just like start writing. And sometimes they're like, ah, you got to go out and like find things to write about. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. <laughs> like there's a balance yeah, there that needs to be. Yeah, and the pressure, you know, that you were talking about too. Like I was, I was the same way. Like I did my undergrad, you know, my four year undergrad in like nine years. You know, I took time off three times. You yeah. know, what I, I did my one <laughs> year, my first <laughs> one year master's in three years. You know, it's just yeah. like, and I'm glad I took that time off. You know, it paid off in the end. Like it just made sure when I was there, I was ready to be there. Exactly. And it's like taking the scenic route is sometimes actually the the real route that you need to take, right? Yeah. So like it's yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. For any listeners interested, The End is in the Middle is available at local bookstores near you. And there's no excuses for saying that they're not because they are. I, I've checked personally. <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Daniel. And uh, it was a lovely chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Maddie. Thank you. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of Writer's Block. For our last segment, we will be featuring a reading from a writer I have always greatly admired. Next up, we have a piece from Canadian writer, radio broadcaster, and humorist Stuart McLean. Stuart McLean was a professor of broadcasting as well as the author and brain behind the Vinyl Cafe stories, which aired on radio for over 20 years. McLean often traveled and read his stories aloud in front of a live audience. He had an authentic passion for the stories of everyday Canadians and toured the country to connect with them. I remember listening to his stories on the radio, but my fondest memory was finding a collection of his work in a used bookstore in Nelson, British Columbia. The CDs kept me company on the long ride home. Recently I picked up his collection of notes from his time on the radio. This last segment is featured in those archives. It may be kind of dusty, but I think that what he has to say is now more imperative than it maybe ever has been. It feels more grounded than any opinion, article, or conversation that I've eavesdropped on recently. And maybe it is. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Here is Stuart McLean. I think the North American media, and I'm speaking of both the entertainment industry and the news bureaus who frame the world for us, I think the North American media have, over the last 50-odd years, framed our view of the world in a most unhelpful way. We have been told over and over again, in both direct and indirect ways, that the world is not a safe place a proposition I fundamentally disagree with, which is not, I hasten to say, to imply that there are not dangerous people out there or even dangerous states. It is a complex and complicated world, sometimes sad, often frustrating, full of intrigue and intricacy. But the simple fact is we are not surrounded by enemies. And the vast majority of people you might meet here or there or anywhere would lend a hand in help rather than in harm if they were to raise a hand at all. Yet these stories, the stories of people like Maxine and Jill, are not the stories we hear or see. Consider all those police shows and reality shows and talk shows. that They add up. Consider the movie chosen by the Academy of Motion Picture Artists last year as the best of the year, the best America could do. No Country for Old Men. It was a movie of unspeakable violence. And it left me, anyway, with one lesson. 
and that was to question my instinct to stop at the edge of a highway if I ever saw anyone in distress, ever again. The strangers our schools teach our children to avoid are more apt to help than harm them. Yet here in Canada, various politicians and police forces serving their own self-interests have warned us about rising crime rates when the reverse is true. But we buy into the fear and hover around our children like secret service agents. And instead of sending them next door to call on someone, we arrange playdates as if we were social secretaries rather than moms and dads. We have bought this danger story, hook, line, and sinker. And in so doing, we've robbed our children of childhood. I fell for it too, which is probably why I feel so strongly about this. It's worth pointing out that it's not just the media who should be held to accounts. Political leaders have been equally adept at this game. It served more than one leader to paint the world as a dangerous place to point to the enemies hovering around us. Any person who has traveled widely would tell you otherwise, would tell you this world is full of men and women just like you, men and women who are anxious to look after themselves and provide for their families and muddle through to the end as best they can. There are not armies huddled on our borders in the darkness, and if there are, They are the armies of the hungry and the dispossessed. And yes, again, there are bad guys. And yes, it's a tricky business navigating the ship of state. But any political leader who tries to tell you it's time to circle the wagons is trying to sell you a bill of goods. Forgive me for going on, but it's not said enough. And I'll say it again. The world is a good place, full of good people. And when we act out of that, when we act out of hope and optimism and faith in our fellow man, we act out of our best selves, and we are capable of doing great things, of contributing to the greater good. Hope and optimism are not synonymous with naivete. We should be looking to the future with flinty and steely eyes for sure, but they should be wide open with hope, not squinting in fear. If it's evildoers you seek, you'll find them aplenty. If it's enemies that you want, they are there too. But if you want the truth, the truth is, blessed are the peacemakers. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you.